we don't believe in our theology. We, 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 we trust in a living God. We don't believe in our theology. And if, if Christians understood this, theology is just their best approximation, as Bernie Ram used to say, you know, there'd be a whole lot less argument, I think. But the problem is too many people believe in their theology, and that's why when the doo-doo hits the swirling blades, bada-boom, bada-bing, they lose their faith because their theology didn't work. Deconstruction, today on In the Shadow of the Cross. Welcome into In the Shadow of the Cross, and I am Lauren Rosser. I'm here with my friends Jim Durkin. Hello. And Michael Harden. Hello, hello. And uh, we have an interesting topic to discuss today. Uh, we're talking about deconstruction. Uh, a couple weeks ago, a pastor friend of mine and I were having a conversation, and he was talking about his concerns regarding deconstruction, where he has seen... Um, People kind of go off the deep end and throw the baby out with the bathwater. And uh, it's made him really reluctant to make any kind of uh, drastic changes or, or really weigh out or look at deconstruction. Um, and, and we found that that's kind of a, a common theme is that it's almost like there's two ditches on the side of deconstruction. The one is Martin Luther nailed it down, got it perfect. Everything needs to stay exactly the way it is. And then the other ditch seems to be, let's just go crazy, throw Jesus away, throw the scriptures away, throw the father away and, and just, you know, do whatever we want kind of lifestyle. So um, as, as we were preparing for this topic and talking about this amongst ourselves, um, you guys brought up some really interesting points in the conversation. And uh, Jim, I remember in particular, you said something just last week and uh, about that even made me think this was a good topic to start with. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts on, on what you shared. Uh, well, unfortunately, I don't remember exactly <laughs> what I said last week, but um, I, I, thinking, thinking about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, I actually uh, Googled uh, where did that, where did that uh, whole phrase come from? And uh, generally speaking, there's a story told about uh, people on the frontier and they'd take a bath twice a year and it'd start with dad and mom and then the kids and finally the baby and the water would be so filthy that when they throw it out maybe the baby would go too and uh, that's a, a cute story but re really the the terminology comes from uh, Germany originally in the uh, 14th or 15th century something like that but there's also a story that I that I like about a preacher who talked who used this term, and and he used it in in regards to uh, abolishing slavery. And abolishing slavery, he considered it that's the bathwater we want to get rid of. But the baby was the slave themselves. And I think in the, in this issue of 
decommissioning or, or, or deconstruction. I, I get the point that we want to be free to ask questions. We want to be free to explore certain things. But in the middle of it, we don't want to throw the baby out. We, we, in other words, we want to consider, is our foundation the principles and the doctrines that we've been taught, or is the principle Jesus himself and what he did? And, and, and so if we give ourselves liberty to look into, to ask questions, to explore, uh, that's fine but not to discredit the very foundation of our faith, who is Jesus. Yeah, really good thoughts there. And, and uh, I, I mean, I, I think that that's the, the thing I've run into is like I've watched friends on, on social media who, um, you know, the, they'll go down the, the deconstruction path. And at first I'm tracking with them going, man, that's some good posts you're posting there. And then all of a sudden, like one, he just kind of went off the cliff. And all of a sudden it's like, I am God. We are all God. We are the fourth person, the Trinity. And I'm like, dude, I'm out. <laughs> I don't know where you're going, but yeah. this, this, this is not, you know, that, that's definitely an example of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There is a, <clears throat> in the current uh, Protestant American Protestant liberal tradition in America. Uh, there's a scorched earth policy right now. Um, it has um, a long history, you know, in American Christianity, but not not as very nasty <laughs> as it is today. I mean, if you if you look at this old house, the old television show. They deconstructed the house first, you know, the, down to the frame sometimes. But if, if it was useful, they left it. If it wasn't useful, they took it out and they rebuilt around it, or, you know, what I'm saying. Um, the problem with deconstruction today as a philosophy is it's been married to nihilism, a nihilism which has been growing in the West for a long time. And um, along with the postmodern um, preoccupation with the fact that there can be no truth. And you combine those three together, and what you get is blow up the whole house. <laughs> you know, so, so deconstruction today is a different phenomenon than it was a decade ago. You know, I, I, when I think of deconstruction, I think of people like myself, Greg Boyd, and, and others who are seeking to um, analyze the, the, the American Protestant tradition um, and just simply, in a sense, demythologize it. So that, so that it, whatever it is that we are moving toward um, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that that is somehow very, very important, you know. Um, uh, we don't have the freedom uh, to walk away from church history like we can walk away from a local congregation. We don't have that freedom. And, and that's really interesting bringing up the church history part because, you know, I, I like how, Michael, one time you made the statement, you said the one of the problems in the church is our, our view of church history doesn't go past last Tuesday. And uh, I, I've always loved that. And uh, I, I think that, you know, we don't realize we do carry a history with us. And, um, and, and so talking about like, um, when we look at the, just, it's interesting how you said, like, it's different than it was 10 years ago. 
And I didn't put that puzzle piece together until you said that, that, that you're right. Ten years ago, it was a different animal because it wasn't a thing. Now it's become, it's got a title, it's become, it's been labeled, and now it gets defined and it becomes another thing. So, you know, almost like another denomination or something, you know, now we're deconstructionists and it becomes the thing I take pride in. And, and, the, and the thing that I hate is whenever that happens, one, it becomes an us versus them thing, them thing again, because now it's we're in, you're out, we're deconstructing, you're not. And, and then the debates begin and, and that kind of thing, not, not healthy life-giving debates, but debates as in me versus you, just like you get in denominationalism. And uh, and that wasn't around 10 years ago. 10 years ago, you, people were just kind of exploring and unraveling kind of all the things that have been added to, like you said, the teachings of the apostles and the prophets and, and all the stuff that's been added to Jesus and kind of questioning things like, um, what did we inherit historically that's not been so good? And what do we have that is good? And, uh, but then it became this thing and I'm watching now these raging debates on, uh, like there's people, um, fundamentalists and stuff who come out strongly against deconstruction because now it's a thing. And then other people say, well, I'm a deconstructionist and they're calling them out to come out and have these big debates. And, you know, and, and I'm just like, that's not, that's doesn't seem like the healthy road to me because again, once, once you label something, you define it and now it's like, oh, so are you in or are you out? Right, it has become politicized. Once it was taken over by groupthink, it it became a thing. And and as Jacques Ellul warned us in his books back in the sixties and seventies, once once you reify something like technique, you, you doom yourself forever to be enslaved to it. The interesting thing about this business of deconstruction, you guys, is that if you if deconstruction is the last stop on the tracks, it's the, the terminus, it's the end, you're left with nothing. Yeah. And so one really can understand the appeal of nihilism uh, in, in, uh, globally, uh, but especially in, in a Christendom where the Superman God doesn't come to the rescue, one loses one's faith, one starts to read a little Bishop Shelby Spong, a little bit of Bart Ehrman, you know, and, and all of a sudden, one is an expert <laughs> on what can or cannot, is, is or is not doctrine, is or is not true, can or cannot be said. I mean, it's, it's to me, the stunning thing is this. Christianity has left the world an intellectual tradition that is robust and prophetic and powerful. And it's that entire intellectual tradition that has now been thrown away by our deconstructionists who really have thrown out their heritage for a bowl of porridge, you know, and they're saying, come join me on the desert island. It's lovely here. It's me and, and, and uh, it's me, <laughs> you know. <laughs> No, that's really good how you deconstruct, you're left with nothing if you just keep going. Because the whole point, like you use that house analogy, if, if you're refurbishing a house, the goal is not to demolish the house and, and it's gone. The goal is to take the house down to what's wrong with it and then, but keep the framework of what's right. So, and then the goal is to rebuild 
it's right. not to destroy forever. And and it's interesting, until you said that, I realized that's a phenomenon I've been seeing in, especially in social media, where it's like, because it's become the thing, it's like we deconstruct forever. And so it's like, then we hit the bottom and then we keep digging and, right. and, and keep destructing more and more. And it's like, at what point do you stop and, and go, okay, now it's rebuilding time. You know, now it's time to, to put a new framework up. My, the example I would give you is it took me uh, 40 years of deconstructing the category of revelation in the West before I could come up with a doctrine of the authority of Holy Scripture without a theory of inspiration. But I struggled all the way through that to get to that point so that I could talk about the authority of Scripture. But I don't have to have any theory of inspiration, you know. And if, if the problem, <clears throat> people quit too soon. This is the thing. They quit too soon. They don't pursue their questions all the way. They, they pursue them enough to feel justified about leaving or having been kicked out, you know. And that's it. And they, but they really don't pursue their questions. Not, I not think, like, not like a seeker. Sorry, Jim. Go ahead. That's all right. I, I, I think one of the reasons is that we we've been tr uh, trained by example, not necessarily the word, but by example that we have to have absolutes. We have to have an answer to every question, and it has to fit within the general scope of of the group that we identify with so the minute we start asking questions we want an answer and we want an immediate answer we're we're uncomfortable with questions that remain unanswered to um stay in that kind of mystery place where we're a seeker then if somebody comes along and they they um enter the conversation with us and and we feel comfortable enough to let them know that we're asking questions if they put us in that camp they label us oh you're a deconstructionist <laughs> well at that moment something begins working in our brain and we have to figure out, are we a deconstructionist or not? If not, we run right back to the safety of all our preconceived notions. If we decide that we are, then how much of what's in the deconstruction camp are we willing to accept? There you go. And, and we want to nail down every one of those questions instead of potentially looking at some and saying, I'm not ready to ask those questions yet. I'm not there. Right. And, and the ones I am asking, if I don't have an answer that is solidly biblical, solidly foundational, solidly inspired by the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to form the answer yet. I'm going to keep asking the question. Yeah, to me, an unanswered question is simply an unresearched question. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> we, we had to do this exercise in tracker school, wilderness survival training, early, early on, because it's, a, it's part of the pedagogy. 
and Tom sends you out into the landscape and you sit down and you pick one item out in the landscape, uh, whether it's whatever it is, could be anything. And I just saw a little piece of rope laying there about six inches long, you know, and I had to write down every single question I could think of that, that mm. about I could ask about that rope. I mean, when I was finished, I had over 85 questions, you know. And I, I think that this is what we have to do if we're if we're gonna if we're really really wanting to truly authentically deconstruct, we simply cannot be satisfied with the answers of those who have climbed the the ladder of faith, sat on the roof, and then kicked the ladder away and said, "Come join me." Okay, um, we have to um, we we have to help folks understand that the 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 in the intellectual process of the Christian life, which is just as important as the spiritual side of things, or the psychological or the social, that the intellectual side of the Christian life is neither a tyrant nor a doormat. Um, and it, it, it's not that, that, like Jim says, that there's all this truth up here that the church somehow has and we buy into it and so it's a tyrant, but neither is, is it a doormat where we get to walk all over it. If we are going to move forward, here's my thought on this. You know, remember Paul Ricoeur, the French uh, philosopher? He said that there's three stages in knowing. He called the first stage, first naivete. And that's kind of a God said it, I believe it, that settles it, mentality. It's what children learn. My mommy and daddy said it, right? Um, and then there's critical distance. And we all have to move to critical distance. We, be, we go from children to youth. We become adolescents. We ask questions. We ask why. We challenge authority. You know, we do these things. And Ricoeur says, but then there's another transition you have to make to this adulthood. He calls it second naivete. It's, it's the place where you are, can handle all the questions of critical distance and still live in trust. Because I, I, this is not record, this is me. We don't believe in our theology. <laughs> yeah. we, 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 we trust in a living God. We don't believe in our theology. And if, if Christians understood this, theology is just their best approximation, as Bernie Ram used to say. You know, there'd be a whole lot less arguing, I think. But problem is too many people believe in their theology, and that's why when the doo-doo hits the swirling blades, bada-boom, bada-bing, they lose their faith because their theology didn't work. Wow. That's really good that we live in trust, not not out of our theology. Because, I mean, that not that the, the bottom line of everything is that, you know, the bottom line is that if, if we're living in trust, then, then these kinds of things, deconstruction, not deconstruction, it's a non-issue. Because because right. trust means you can ask questions. Because right. I try, my daughter could ask me anything growing up because she trusted yeah. me. Um, so it's it, it it's a safe place to be is that place of trust. And it seems like yeah. we need to move from the pursuit of certainty into the place of trust. Yes, Cer certainty is an intellectual operation. Um, trust isn't. Trust is a is a human. Uh, it's a social. It's social before it's anything. It's relational. A term I know that, that Jim is quite fond of because his dad sure was. <laughs> <laughs> without, without coming up with another label, 
Would you say that we're in another Reformation? Well, we are, you know, I think it was Phyllis Tribble pointed out, the church about every 500 years goes through a major change. You know, right. five, 500, 529, the fall of Rome, uh, the, the year 1000, Joachim Fiora, the apocalyptic stuff, the shift for, for to, over to post-Charlemagne, discolasticism, the Reformation, and now today. So, um, we are going through a major change, but we're going through a sea change today that is 50 or 100 times greater than that of the Reformation, partly because we're moving into uh, the post-industrial world to the technological world, and all that stuff, you know, that, that, that we could talk about ad infinitum. But the church, uh, as an institution, um, has, has seen its day right now, has seen its day. And I'm a time when I say church, I mean American Protestant Christianity. I, I mean nothing else because uh, the Catholics they have their issues, the Orthodox have their issues, you know. But uh, and 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 Protestant Christianity in England is very different than it is here in the States in some ways, and and the, and in Australia too. So I'm I'm limiting myself to how I perceive you know my 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 nation, <laughs> but. Um, we are we've lost intellectual moorings in the west the west is the, the 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 west has become unmoored and it did that when it left the you know the the classical education behind you know and and it went off into all kinds of tangents and um and and i've watched it just destroy the seminaries in the united states i I don't know outside of Princeton where you could really get a good seminary education. Maybe Duke. I don't know. Um, but uh, we are definitely, Jim, in a in a time of, of enormous change. And um, one of the things I'm hoping we're doing together here, I mean, the three of us, is to help process this right. so that it's not scary. To help folks understand, yeah, you can have all kinds of legitimate questions theologically, but some of you got a whole bunch of really stupid questions. And what you need to do is learn to ask better questions. The questions you're asking are locked in a worldview or a framework. I, I don't even go near. I left that stuff when I was three years old, you know what I mean, kind of thing. So, yeah, we're, we're hopefully on the cusp of something marvelous. I mean, how cool would it be, dude, to have an authentic Jesus movement wasn't controlled by fundamentalism or liberalism, but it was just an outpouring of the Spirit. Carol Wimmer, in her book, The Net, talks about the future of the churches just being networks of people, mm -hmm. like we see now on Facebook and here and other. So who knows? We may be part of something It's you know, at the beginning. That, that's interesting because that same conversation with that pastor friend I was just talking about at the beginning of the podcast, um, I ended up sharing with him about um, on my journey, how it's led to networking with people all over the world. And it's been through friends of friends, you know, that that's even how I met you, Michael was through a mutual friend and, uh, and then Jim know you from back. And then you've, I've met people through you and you've met people through me. And it, it's just, it seems to be exactly what you're saying, that there's just this huge network. And so my view of the body of Christ has shifted so enormously from the small little group in a, a building that I used to, you know, that I would meet yeah. with to friends all over the country that that I really love and, and yeah. am 
on this journey of discovering who our father is with. Um, so it's it's really phenomenal um, what's happening. But at the same time, I, I like how you talked about that hopefully the three of us are helping people feel a little more at ease with the, the changes and stuff that are happening because, you know, just as a species, we hate change. You know, there are very few people who, who like change. Um, I'm a little one of the oddballs that I, I kind of thrive on change. I, I get bored with jobs pretty quickly. It took me a long time to learn to stay put at places and stuff because I like change. <laughs> but but uh, most people don't like change. And so going through that can be can be very hard and the other thing is it's not just the theological questions it's we have emotional attachment to things you know i can know something mentally i mean i i've even talked to, with another friend uh, david frederickson he shared with me stories about other pastors he's had conversations with about um some of the things that are surrounding deconstruction and and they'll go yeah i see that you're absolutely right i see this has to change and that has to change but you know what i'm really close to retirement I, I really don't want to, you know, do this. So I'm going to ride this out. And, you know, and, and it's like, part of me is like, thanks for being honest, you know, because mm -hmm. at least you're not pretending you're, you're straight up saying, I don't want to go down that road. Yeah. Pastors preach from their wallets, not from scripture. <laughs> I, I think that's okay. Not not what you said, Michael, what Lawrence said. <laughs> 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 if, a, if a person's put in 30, 40, 50 years and, and he's close to retiring and he's like, you know what, I just want to, I just spend the next two, three years, I want to ride this thing out. Uh, I'm not saying I'm not going to ask those questions. I'm not willing to look at it. It's just this isn't the right timing for me. I'd say that's okay. Me too. And and in addition to that, uh, I want to give a little bit of my own story. When I first began to ask some of these questions, um, I started going through some real self-doubt. Um, am I being deceived? Am I backsliding? Am I insane? Right. <laughs> Am I going right. crazy? And uh, part of my uh, support group was uh, Lauren uh, helped me with that, introduced me to some friends of his. And I began to understand that it's okay to ask questions. Mm -hmm. What it's not okay, and I'll say it again, uh, What's not okay is come up with answers in my own head. <laughs> Michael, you uh, said something the other day when we were talking, uh, and you alluded to it a minute ago. Are we asking the right questions? Mm -hmm. There are simple questions. Um, did the flood really happen? <laughs> and it's like that's almost a non-question. Because my faith doesn't depend on whether the flood actually happened or not. Or did it cover the whole earth or just the known world at that time? And if I'm spending a lot of time just asking questions like that, I'm not really asking the right questions at all. Right. 
if I'm asking questions about that touch on my understanding of who the Father is, my relationship with Jesus Christ, not through the church or through the teachings of the church or through my pastor, but that intimate personal relationship I have with the Lord, then I'm asking some of the right questions. Then I'm actually challenging myself to move on in the faith. But I've talked to people on occasion that tell me, yeah, I started that deconstructing stuff and I finally just had to quit. And I said, okay, can you tell me what kind of questions you're asking? Well, did the Lord really quit create the earth in six days? Did the Red Sea really part? Did they walk across on what? I'm like, why are you asking questions like that? <laughs> Let's talk about what the real questions are. <laughs> I hope that makes sense. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. Because basically the kinds of questions they're asking at that point are fundamentally apologetics. They want to know, do I have I got my apologetics down? And if I have my apologetics down, by gosh, you know, then I'm good. And what happens is it's when their apologetics start falling apart. That's what's getting deconstructed is their apologetics. Not their faith tradition, their apologetics. But they take the whole thing with them. So, for example, with take hell, for example. Is there a hell? Does it matter? Um, uh, in one sense, yes. In one sense, no. But does it matter when it comes to preaching the gospel? The answer is absolutely it matters. Because if your gospel is a mixture of heaven and hell, that's not gospel. You know? And so it doesn't mean we get to just say, well, we don't know, and therefore it doesn't matter. Because it does matter. You know? And we have to figure out the best way to help people ask better questions. I like how uh, in the me being a movie buff in the movie The Matrix, one of the big lines is "It's the question that drives us," and uh, and I think that's exactly what we're talking about. Actually, is it when you really have that question, it's it's that you're really seeking the answer for that that pertains to your life not just apologetics. It does drive you. And and I think that, you know, that's what we see Jesus do all the time is he would he would come to people and he would simply make a statement or ask a question that would hit something in them that would, you know, to the rich man, what, what do I do to, you know, sell all you have, get to the poor? It's like that just disrupted his world. Now he's going to be left with a lot of questions. The woman at the well, you know, ha, ha, you know, um, yeah. give me a drink. What do I draw? You know, he, he hits that that hunger, that thirst in her. Um, he, he constantly hits the thing that causes people to push forward. And he doesn't leave. This is the thing that annoys me. He doesn't leave us with certainty. He leaves you with the question. And the question is meant to draw you closer to the Father, to that place, Michael, that you said of relational trust. I, I find it interesting even that, um, that when it, – it's funny. I, I learned wrong in Sunday school. Um, I know this is a real shock. But when uh, I, I think back to when I was told how Jesus was – I was told he was teaching the Pharisees when he was 12 years old. But it says they marveled at the questions that he asked. Yes. You know, that, that even Jesus is a boy. Well, wait a minute. He's God, you know, but he's man and he's asking questions and they're marveling at the questions he's asking. So I, I would love to be in that room and know the questions he was asking. 
Oh, yeah, you can be assured they were halakhic in nature. <laughs> can, can, can you expand on that? Oh, sure. It, it, so it's... Uh, it would have it would have been disputes over points of Torah. Oh, okay. Yeah, like you find in the Mishnah or the Tosefta, the Talmud. Yeah, oh, interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, here's an example of halakha in the in Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. You've heard it said, but I say to you, that he's doing halakha there. He's interpreting Torah. Okay. He's interpreting something legal. If you interpret a narrative, you know, the story of Abraham and Sarah, that's Midrash. But when you interpret law, it's Halakha. So anyway, that's what Jesus was probably doing in the temple at 12 years old. You know, it wasn't that he'd been to Bible memory camp and, oh, look at how much a Torah he's got memorized. It's quick toy. So he didn't win the VBS Bible memorization yeah. contest. <laughs> well, I just, I think that's interesting uh, what you're saying, Michael, that he wasn't asking them, well, what does this scripture mean? And what does that scripture mean? And what is this? I think he was asking the, the deeper questions. I, I, I speculate, but perhaps he was asking about questions about the Messiah. What do you think this what do you think this represents? What do you think this means? Who is this pointing to? Yeah, we the thing is we have no evidence. So I would That's just true. have to say we, we don't know what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's pure speculation. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you guys. Let's let's have a little fun here. What is, is can this you the bonus round? Do we What's get that? Is this yeah, extra points. Ready? Uh, okay, ready? Um, I'll take potpourri for 400. <laughs> so um, can you guys think of a major question in your life that has driven you? Sure. Do you mind sharing it? Sure. The, the question that drove me for for from the, the moment I entered the Jesus movement until I wrote my book, The Jesus Driven Life, was who is Bonhoeffer's question? Who is Jesus Christ for us today? Who is Jesus? I wanted to know who Jesus was. I mean, after reading hundreds and hundreds of books on the historical Jesus and learning the languages and uh, hundreds and hundreds of books on Jesus culture and background and environment, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books on the formation of the Gospels and Gospel studies, redaction criticism, form criticism, this, that, and the other, I wanted to know who Jesus was. I pursued him through spirituality in the Middle Ages as much as I pursued him through form criticism. I pursued him as much in uh, shamanism as I pursued him in gospel studies. I mean, I pursued him everywhere. I, want, I just wanted to know who, that, who is Jesus to me is, was the question that drove me for 40-some years. That's awesome. Jim? Yeah. I, I think it's a similar question. Uh, how do I relate to Jesus? Who or How is he my example? How is he my example? Uh, what does it mean that I'm supposed to be conformed into his image? Um, what does that mean? Uh, I'm human. I'm never going to be divine. Um, I've always been taught that he was fully God, fully man, and that's never going to be me. I'm never going to be fully God. And so 
how do I relate to him? And is that even a good starting point, that he's fully God, fully man? Uh, I hope over several of these podcasts we'll begin to address some of that. But that was that was my question from almost the beginning of uh, my Christian experience. Wow, that's cool. I, I would say for me it was, if God is love, what's with all these views of God that I have and, and these verses that, that seem to point to the opposite direction of that? And, and that was a huge wrestling point for me for a lot of times, reading 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And the, the first time someone pointed out, said, well, if you change love to God, God is patient, God is kind, it threw my life into a crisis. Because I went, I, it brought me to tears, literally, because I was going, wait a minute, if, if, God is, if God is not arrogant, everything I've been taught about him is arrogant. I didn't even see it until I plugged that in and went, right. everything right. I've been told is God demands my worship. And, and so it was like, that's pretty arrogant. And so it threw me into a crisis. And, and then it seemed to put me in conflict, which some things we're going to talk about later in, 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 as we move on with these podcasts, but with the Old Testament, with the scriptures, and, uh, and uh, it, it's to this day, it's the thing I'm still unwinding. And then even in my own life, how does that mean I live? You know, if God is love, then how, how am I to live? Right? Well, it kind of justifies you having a duality you can love and you can be judgmental or whatever um but (laughs) the the simple answer to that lauren is that was the old testament god before jesus and then when jesus came in he kind of puts his hand up to god and says no god you're gonna have to change here um (laughs) We're on we're in a new mode now. <laughs> That's what I was always taught growing up. That's exactly what I was taught. That's horrible. That's it's funny. That echoes exactly what I was taught growing up. Because I remember even asking my parents, you know, because my grandpa was a Baptist pastor. I grew up in a very Baptist home, and and uh, and I remember saying that, saying, "Why is the God in the Old Testament so different than God in the New Testament?" Being told basically that that well, well, yeah. when Jesus came, we entered the grace period, and you know. So it, I never no, really. No. It was during the Second Temple period that they invented Prozac for divinity. Come on, Michael, just stick that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> but what I say in the Jesus-driven life, where when I was told by a, a dear, dear colleague, you know, you have God's ten, God's attributes, you have to hold God's attributes and tensions, and I said, if God is tenth, maybe He needs a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, Mercy, they're really fine with it. He's gone. It's like WWF in the heart of the father. <laughs> That's another one I was told. You have to hold the attributes in tension. We live in the yeah. tension. So God is wrath to... and God is love. Yeah. Oh, great, Lauren. Now you've opened a can of worms. I'm good at that. <laughs> yes. It's good. Oh, well. you know, listen, there's so many wonderful, wonderful things we get to play with. Um, yeah. I, I think the thing that, that I, would, I would want to, to say and kind of to summarize is that deconstruction is something we all do all through life. When we're children, we go through it as teenagers. When we're, 
when we're teenagers and we we realize that after 10 years of labor, we should have enjoyed high school more, you know, <laughs> we deconstruct our teenagers, you know, but, um, but, uh, and then you get to retirement and deconstruct your whole life. Um, but, uh, you know, leaving the city and walking into the desert is one thing. Saying that the desert's absolutely incredible and you can thrive here is something you can't say. You have to journey always to oases, from oasis to oasis. And if you can't do that, you're going to suffocate and die out there in deconstruction land. And uh, that's my greatest concern right now, are all the people whose faith journeys I see withering on the vine. They're, you know, the, 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 they're just, just withering away for lack of, of water. Um, yeah, I, I'm concerned about them. Very, very much. That's a um, sobering, but it's a good final thought. Uh, I think that's probably why the three of us have agreed to do this together. Because we all have friends. Uh, some of my friends I've walked with for 40, 50 years that are, I think, asking the wrong questions and therefore coming up with the the wrong answers and uh, things have happened to all of us in um, uh, Christian circles and in churches that we've attended or whatever and I get that I get that people are have been hurt by the institution uh, I, I get that it it uh, has caused people just to say I'm done with all of it Mm -hmm. And then start poking, trying to poke holes at, at, at everything to justify their feelings. Right. Um, yes. But it, it, it concerns me greatly for, for their sake because I think the highest goal for me is that I live in a relationship with the Lord that brings me peace. And when I see a person who's no longer at peace, who's troubled, who's uh, discouraged, disappointed, uh, depressed, whatever, um, it it concerns me greatly. And uh, I think I think that's a sobering thought, really. Yeah. Well, it just means we've got an awful lot of work to do if we're really honest. Yeah. You know, we've got a lot because right, right now what, what the church really needs are uh, leaders um, that are just not fly by night. Hey, I'm, I'm a cool dude. I'm going to throw up a podcast and, you know, be like, you know, I've got, I've got all, you know, I, yeah, I've got it all sussed kind of stuff. No, there, um, information, data is just information and information cribbed together is knowledge. But knowledge is not yet wisdom. Knowledge is only wisdom when it has been plugged through the crucible of life. Yeah. And I was just thinking earlier, we bring about 175 years of wisdom here together in our ages. Put our ages together. 175. <laughs> two, old, two old Jesus movement hippies and, and some tech millennial, you know, but uh, whatever you are, Gen Z, I don't know. I'm, I'm Gen X. Yeah, okay. yeah, you give me a house key and a microwave, and I'm good. You're good, all right. <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, and and they need shepherds. And I'm 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 sitting here, Jim, and you know how it is at our age. We 
we kind of start to go, you know what? Um, I may not have been called to be a shepherd before, but man in my heart, is it ever there? Yeah. That's the truth. Yeah. I, I hear you guys. And, um, not a yeah, minister, it, not a clergy person. Right. No. And, and, and it's interesting because through the course of this conversation of the, um, looking at, you know, it came up, you know, where are we headed? Where are we going in the midst of all this change? And and Michael, you had touched on this a few weeks ago when you shared in my living room about the future of the Protestant church, that really my yearning and, and what I see has to happen is the same thing that you said, is it's going to require people who've really taken the cross into their lives of, of a cruciform life, who've, who've really been to hell and back. They've, yeah. they've been to the cross. They've, they've died yeah. to the to the things it's it's easy to say they've died to the things of the world but but i mean that stuff doesn't come out easy it it, no. it really comes through crushing and breaking and betrayal and pain and all those things where they've really chosen the cross and yeah. that is my prayer and my yearning is that the direction we're headed i pray for a whole lot of crucified people who've been resurrected who will be at the helm because i don't want to see just like was said here of in the jesus people movement of how um the the institutionalization of it came up and kind of smothered it um and that's because when you have uncrucified people taking the helm that's what's bound to happen and uh, so whatever form it takes, I, I really just pray that, that God is raising up people who have, who have embraced the cross, have walked through the cross, and are ready for the other side of it. Well, and, and, and it, we, probably for other episodes for us to unpack, but for me, uh, the cross isn't something you seek any more than you seek to get arrested or you seek right. trouble, right? <laughs> The cross yeah. is imposed upon you, and and the cross is what happens when you become become scapegoated by a group of people. And the question is, how do you handle it? For most of my adult life, when I got crucified, I was cursing back. You know, I mean, God God hates you. God's going to get you. That's kind of the Anabaptist thing. You know, while they're being martyred, God's going to get you. Uh, I had to learn. No, no. The point of being crucified and, and allowing Jesus to be formed in me is to forgive them, to say, if I, I forgive them, Father. They just don't know what they're doing. They're clueless. Mm -hmm. they, they just yeah. really don't know what they're doing. Wow. That's good. Really good stuff. Well, guys, this, this has been a really, good, really good conversation. All right. So as, as we're wrapping up this podcast, we, it's time for the lightning round. We, we've got to find out your final thoughts, guys, on uh, a, a couple of issues. First of all, um, deconstruction, good or bad or in between. Uh, Michael, what do you say? Um, as an intellectual process, important. As a social process in Christianity, not so important. Jim? I think if, uh, if you come to the point in your journey where... There's no joy where it's root. You, you just do what you're supposed to do because that's what you were told you're supposed to do. Then it can be healthy to start looking at some things. In the very beginning of this, Michael talked about it like um, remodeling. And sometimes you look at a wall... I used to do remodeling. You look at a wall, everything looks solid. You take that sheetrock off and you see there's some things that, okay, we got to address some issues here. 
And so if that's the point of deconstruction, I believe it can be healthy, yeah. Okay, good. All right. Um, what about uh, uh, the cross? You, you guys want the cross or not? <laughs> Michael? Do I want the cross? Yes. Are you asking me if I want to suffer? Or are you asking me is the cross a necessary uh, or an essential element in my understanding of Christian theology? I, I'm asking if you want to suffer. Hell no. <laughs> Jim? I'm tired of suffering. <laughs> uh, I can't believe you'd even ask that question. <laughs> oh, yeah. We all want to pick up our cross daily and follow oh. him. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's funny. I, I find I can wax eloquent about suffering, but man, I sure don't want well, it. If, if the Holy Spirit is feminine, can I say whip me, mistress? <laughs> <laughs> Did I just go there? Oh, man. All right. <laughs> Well, everyone, on that note, <laughs> I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in to our podcast. Thanks for joining us, and we will return again next week with a whole new episode. Uh, you've been listening to In the Shadow of the Cross. Uh, once again, I'm Lauren Rosser, here with Michael Harden and Jim Durkin, and we'll be back next week. 